0: towards the end of this sermon. In fact, today we're going to finish the sermon that Jesus has been giving for most of this chapter. We've entitled this whole section, uh, God's Gift of True Bread, the Flesh of the Son of God for the Eternal Life of Chosen Disciples. Um, this is the next to last section uh, that we're going to be in this morning uh, to this whole large section in chapter 6. goes all the way to Verse 71. Next week, it's going to be sort of the conclusion, the response of the crowd, and really the leaving of many disciples from Christ. This whole scene takes place in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus has been teaching this crowd of would-be disciples. They're excited for him. He's just in the, done this amazing miracle. They say he's the new Moses, he's going to be our revolutionary leader. Let's make him our king. And this whole sermon flows out of that. They think he is the provider of new manna, and Jesus is going to correct them. So the sermon begins in verse 26, where Jesus first exposes those who come to him wrongly. This goes from verses 22 to 34. He reveals their true motivations for coming to him They were not interested in receiving what he had come to truly offer, the life that he had come to offer. They missed the spiritual significance of the sign of the feeding of the 5,000. They're mainly concerned with the sustaining of their earthly life now. We said the the default setting of unbelievers is earthly mindedness. And it's this life, my comfort, my belly, um, my life. And they want this kind of a Messiah. They don't want a suffering Messiah, which is where Jesus goes in this chapter. And then in verses 35 to 40, Jesus explains his identity and the essential nature of all true faith in him. He tells them explicitly that he is the bread. He's not come to be a bread giver. He is the bread which has been sent from heaven for the life of the world. That was the point of the sign And the only proper response to Jesus is one which comes to him for the satisfaction of all of one's spiritual hungers and needs. It's the only way to come to Christ rightly. Those who recognize their spiritual deadness are invited to come to Christ for what he alone can and will provide. But then we come to this question, why do some come and not others? In fact, most in this chapter are going to reject Christ, but some do come, some do believe. Why is that? One well, to this point, Jesus also talks about the operation of the triune God who stands behind any and all saving faith. The Father has given a specific people to the Son, and they will respond in true faith to the Son. And the Son will respond out of total devotion to his Father with receiving and preserving all these that the Father has given to him. And despite the fact that many do not believe in him, Jesus' mission can never be thwarted. Why? Because all the Father gives to him will come to him. And that brings us to our next point where we were last time. Jesus expounds on the essential work of God for saving faith and the essential truth of his heavenly origin. The crowd is understanding what Jesus is claiming now. He said, I am the bread that came from heaven. And in claiming that, Jesus is claiming heavenly origin, which implies his preexistence. And they hear it, and they reject it. How can that be? They grumble, it says. It means that they are the same spiritual condition of the first wilderness multitude who grumbled. And so Jesus now goes to address their hearts, which must change if they're going to receive him rightly. And he goes back into the sovereign work of the Father. If any are going to come to Christ rightly, something must happen to them. The Father must drag them to the Son. He must change their hearts. They must be taught by God. And all for whom the Father does this work always come to the Son. Until this happens, none will respond to Christ rightly. And look at verse 51 of chapter 6 now. This is where uh, we will springboard into our chapter, our section this morning. John 6, verse 51. This is where the passage ended with Jesus talking about why not only his pre-existence but also his incarnation is absolutely essential for the life he's come to give. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What the crowd gets hung up on is that Jesus claims heavenly origin, even though he's a very fleshly, physical person. They don't see how that could be the case. Jesus says it must be the case if there will be any life for the world. Well, that brings us to our point this morning. Verses 52 to 59, Jesus now exposits the truth about his sacrificial death and the way it gives life to believers. So what is the connection then between Jesus' flesh and food and eternal life? What's the connection between those? Why does his flesh give life? And how does a person receive this life from him? Look at verse 52. We begin with a quarreling crowd. It says, Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? <clears throat> this chapter unfolds in a way similar to how the Nicodemus story unfolded. Remember, Jesus is talking to him about the new birth. And Jesus, uh, Nicodemus responds with two of these how questions, Right? How can I enter a second time in my mother's womb? And then Jesus explains more, and then he responds again. How can this be the case? happens here as well. The crowd also has two how questions. And these how questions are not, how does this work? Can you explain more so that we can believe? They're a way of stiff-arming, of of rejecting. So look up at verse um, 42. They say, how does he say, now I have come down from heaven? And then now look at verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're not saying how does it work so that we can believe, but how can this be the case? I will not believe, right? That is how they are responding to Christ two times in a row, just like Nicodemus did. Verse 52 here, they're responding to his claim that his flesh has been given for the life of the world. Jesus said that whoever eats from his flesh will live forever. And this is just too much for the crowd. So they quarrel. It says they quarrel among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The idea is that they fought with one another about what he could possibly mean. One had one idea, one had another. um, And they were debating with each other. What is he talking about? In John, unbelievers are always caught up on the physical level. Again, think of Nicodemus. All he can think about is a physical birth. How can I re-enter my mother's womb and be born a second time? They're, They're caught up on this superficial surface level. And that's exactly the problem with the crowd here. They completely miss the spiritual significance of Jesus' words. And since they miss that, all that they have is to debate about what he could possibly be talking about. But before we move on, I just want to show you why this crowd should have understood what Jesus was saying. It was actually very plain um, that he was not talking about cannibalism. What's really interesting is Jesus does not engage their how question, right? Look at the rest of the passage. He doesn't say, well, no, 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 you, you missed it. I'm not really talking about physically eating me. I'm really trying to give you a metaphor. He doesn't do that. He doubles down in this passage. He actually makes it harder for them in this passage. Well, why? It's because they should have gotten what he's talking about. It's because of their hard-heartedness that they missed it. The key words, eternal life, bread, and believing, occur over and over again in this passage. Look back at verse 27. Jesus said, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food... That endures to eternal life. How do you do that? Verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe. Place that at verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's how you respond to this bread. Verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Look down in verses 47 to 48. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Then finally, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live for it. The bread that I will give is my flesh. In other words, these people are so taken back with Jesus' claim for Preexistence existence with God, his claim of having life in his flesh for the world, that they completely missed the call to faith as a way to experience this life. Um, it should have been plain what he was talking about. And so in the following verses, verses 53 to 59, Jesus is not going to explain for them that he's not talking about cannibalism. They should have gotten that. Rather, he's going to double down and only heighten the offense. He's now not just going to talk about eating his flesh; he's going to talk about drinking his blood. It's going to make it even harder for them, and he's also using this as an opportunity to highlight the glory of his person and work for us as his disciples. So, in verses fifty-three to fifty-nine, we get the life-providing Christ, and the bulk of this section is going to be in fifty-three to fifty-seven, where we're going to be most this morning the provision of eternal life through the flesh and blood of Christ to be consumed by faith. And I can further break this section down into three subsections, all using the phrase, feeds on me. So look at this, 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. Verse 57, whoever feeds on me. And each one will explain a little bit further the kind of life that Christ has provided and how it can be ours. So first, look at 53 to 54, the believer's present possession of eternal life through the flesh and blood of Christ. He gives us first the exclusive means to eternal life, feeding on the sacrifice of Christ. So look at verse 53. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Jesus now expands the thought of verse 50 to 51, not just feeding on my flesh, but now it's feeding on my flesh and drinking my blood. And this element of blood is going to go through the rest of this section. But why does he do this? Why does he now introduce blood to the conversation? we we'll look back at verse 51 again. He is talking about his flesh for the life of the world. That is substitutionary language. That is sacrificial language. He was speaking about his coming sacrifice. If you remember that lesson, we were saying that there's allusions there. Back even to Isaiah 53, he's going to be that kind of servant. But the crowd missed it. And so now he includes blood to highlight this sacrificial language. Um, Blood refers to life that is poured out. It often refers to a sacrificial animal. Shedding of blood refers to a violent death. So Jesus speaks of his flesh and blood here to make it plain... But the kind of faith he demanded in verse 51 is a faith in Jesus as the one who would suffer a violent death. Okay, so look back at verse 51. The, flat, the, light, the, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The kind of faith that Jesus demands is a faith in him who would suffer a violent death for the life of the world. That's why he includes blood. And Jesus says that this is the only condition under which a person may have life. Look again, verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, except you should eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So apart from feeding on the sacrifice of Christ, there's no other way to have spiritual life. Or to put it another way, true faith that is properly directed towards Christ is a faith directed to him in his sacrificial death that's why jesus describes this as drinking his blood so just think of how offensive this must have been for the jews right they should have understood the spiritual implications but they only hear the physical and now they don't only hear jesus demanding cannibalism they also hear him demand drinking blood which if you know your old testaments that would have been a massive violation of mosaic law But Jesus, of course, is not demanding either, physically. He's speaking of a spiritual feeding by faith on his impending death and slaughter as a sacrificial lamb. Look now at verse 54. He gives the positive flip side of this. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So the eating and drinking here points us back to verse 35, something very similar. Look back there, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So in other words, the proper response to coming to Christ is a coming to him to have all of our spiritual needs, our hungers and thirsts met through his sacrificial death. Who remembers some of those needs? We've talked about them over and over again. These spiritual needs, that is what our hunger and thirst consist of, our spiritual deadness. It's a few things, remember? It includes our guilt, right? And our um, deserving of judgment for our sin. What else? It includes... Spiritual deadness, life apart from the Holy Spirit, we're dead towards God, hard hearts, no ability to obey or keep God's law. It also includes separation from God. There's no access to him, no fellowship with him. Those are our hungers and thirsts. And Jesus says that those who depend on his cross work to deal with these hungers and thirsts, that person has eternal life. The only requirement is that you be hungry. The only requirement is that you know your spiritual deadness and come to Christ and his sacrifice to meet that for you. Look again at the verse, verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. It is a present possession. It is the life of the kingdom now. It is the resurrection now, spiritually, in your hearts. The forgiveness of sins. The transformation of your heart by the Holy Spirit and present fellowship with God. Now. And how do you get it? You get it by feeding on the sacrifice of Christ by faith. So before I move on, the big, the big conversation in, in commentaries, if you open up to this passage, is does this passage, is it teaching about the Eucharist or the, the sacrament or the ordinance of the Lord's Supper? Most Catholic theologians are going to appeal to this text here to say that the way for eternal life is you have to participate in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, right? You have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, the bread and the wine, the sacramental elements. And we don't have time to engage with all the arguments and details under this point, but I just want to make a couple observations for you to show that this absolutely is not the case and is not what this passage is talking about. First, look at the tight connection between verse 54 and verse 40 again. How do you get life in verse 54? You feed on his flesh and drink his blood. You have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And look at this last phrase. And I will raise him up on the last day. Same exact phrase. You don't get eternal life by participating in the Eucharist or any other ordinance. You get it by faith alone in the sacrificial death of Christ. Number two. Look at the repetition of this phrase, verse 54. Feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, verse 56. Feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, 57. He changes it. Feeds on me. He's not talking about elements of the Lord's Supper here. He's talking about his whole person. You feed on the whole person of Christ. On his flesh and his blood, you feed on me. Number three, of all the Gospels, I would say John is the least concerned with the ordinances or the sacraments. John has one goal in this Gospel. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In fact, John, nowhere in his Gospel, speaks of Christian baptism. Nowhere in the Gospel does he even speak about the Lord's Supper. Even in the upper room, chapter 13 through 17, We know that's the Passover meal. John never mentions the meal. He never talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper. Those things are important, obviously. But for John, that is not the goal of his gospel because none of those things are the means to eternal life. There's one thing and one thing alone, and John brings it up over and over again in this gospel. It is by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. But now, that being said, it does not mean that this passage doesn't have allusions to the Lord's Supper. We don't do this passage by partaking in the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper certainly portrays and illustrates what this passage is talking about, right? So do you want to feed on Christ's flesh and drink his blood? How do you do that? You don't do it by coming on Sunday evenings. You do it by faith. We're going to see it's a daily faith in Christ. And yet the Lord's Supper is a gift that all of us need to be participating in Because it not only symbolizes this, it's a means to call you corporately to feed on Christ regularly by faith. Any questions there before we go on? When when Jesus is tempted at the beginning of his ministry too, there's this discussion between him and the tempter, right, about turning these rocks into bread. Mm This, I'm not sure if I've got it straight in my mind So, but it, it's pretty clear that this more in his mind than physically feeding the flesh on yep. bread yep. and that if we have to choose between filling our bodies with bread and filling our bodies spiritually with the word who he is that's that's life yep. that's how we're going to live excellent okay. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah, I think the, you're exactly right. He is the, the true Israel. He's fulfilling everything that they failed to do. Um, and you can see that this passage is so concerned with this life. And Christ is saying, true life is knowing God, knowing his word, now in, him, in himself, knowing Jesus, trusting him, trusting his sacrifice of himself. So Michael, it's I you're saying that, yeah. that the the Catholicism view on the ordinances, Lord, would you compare that to like, the circumcision of the Judaizers mm-hmm. and how much emphasis they put on that? Is mm-hmm. it similar or is that kind of like not unfair So just a demand for something? Like a word Yeah. Or- I mean, I would say, uh, in essence, yeah, it would be the same in that you're adding something to faith alone in Christ the function of it would be a bit different we um, don't have time to talk about the sacraments uh, this morning but the Catholics would view it almost like a funnel the way you get God's grace is these sort of funnels um, through one way is the Lord's You participate in it yeah by faith but you have to do it it comes only through here um, so a bit different I guess from the theology of the Judaizers uh, but same basic problem it's good Well, let's move on to the the second half of verse 54 is the eschatological result of eternal life. Now, look at the rest of verse 54. You have eternal life, and then Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. This is the fourth and final time Jesus says this exact phrase in this passage. I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 39, verse 40, verse 44, and now verse 54. Look at them quickly. Verse 39 This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus raises up everyone the Father gives to him, and everyone the Father draws to him. Then, look at verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus raises up everyone who looks to the Son and feeds on his sacrificial death by faith. The point is that there's no contradiction between the sovereignty of God and our faith in him. And the point is that those who feed on Christ now not only experience eternal life now, but they most certainly will be raised on the last day and enter the kingdom of Christ is committed to believers because they are the gift of the Father. They're the work of the Father. And he's committed to believers because they are those who look dependently upon him alone and feed on his sacrifice. So that is the first way Jesus describes this process. You gain eternal life and you will receive the fullness of it in the resurrection. And it's by feeding on him, by faith, on his sacrifice Look at the next way he describes it. Verse 55 to 56. The believer's perpetual union with Christ, who is himself true food. Look at verse 55. Jesus says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. So he's going to go on to describe what he's just described in some different terms to unpack it for us. And he first gives us the source of this union It is true food and true drink. So here's that word true again. It comes up in the Gospel of John several times. Christ is the true light. He's the true vine. He's coming to make true worshipers. The idea of true is not that which is true versus false, but that which is ultimate versus that which is but a shadow or but a pointer. Food is not false food. You eat bread. It's not false, but it's insufficient in itself. That's what the point of this passage is. All the food you eat, it can't do anything for your spiritual nature, and it will only lead to the grave. Only Christ is true food, ultimate food, because it can lead to life beyond the grave and transform your nature now. All of this is taking place near Passover. Remember chapter 6, verse 4? Certainly the great Passover meal is on people's minds at this time. So Jesus is saying that... The food associated with his sacrifice is even greater than the sacrifice of Passover. All of that pointed to him. So that's the person's union with Christ. The source of it is his his flesh, the true food. Now look at the nature of it, verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So if the food and drink of Christ's flesh and blood are true food and drink, then what does that mean for those who partake of it? If it is so much superior to physical food, then what will happen to you if you eat it? What does he say? Those who eat it and drink it abides in me and I in him. So verse 54 promised eternal life, and now verse 56 is promising this relationship of mutual abiding in Christ. That is the promise. So what does that mean, to abide in Jesus and Jesus abiding in the believer? I'm sure you've heard that terminology. Um, it can be kind of vague. What, what does that mean? How do I abide in Jesus and he abides in me? There's a couple things. First, what does it mean for a believer, the action of believers? Abide in me is what Jesus says. Abiding in Jesus is a persevering dependency on Christ for life. Those who feed in Christ's flesh and blood are brought into a connected relationship with Christ such that his life becomes our life. So how do you abide in Christ? Think of his command, John 15, abide in me and I in you. How do you do that? He tells you here, it is by a persevering trust in his sacrifice. So do you want to abide in him? How do you do it? Persevering trust in his sacrifice It highlights perseverance. The word abiding could be translated remaining, stay connected to me. And it highlights dependence. So think of the illustration of the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Abiding, Jesus, is the kind of abiding of a branch to a large vine. It clings to the vine, and it sucks, and it sucks, and it sucks from the life and the nourishment of the vine. And in the same way, those who cling to Christ perseveringly by faith in his crosswork, depending over and over and over again, drinking from his life and his cross work, are said to abide in Christ. They're brought in this magnificent relationship with the Son. So you abide in Christ by depending on his sacrifice. So before we move on, let me just emphasize the importance of this for our daily lives. Jesus is going to tell us in John 15 that the goal of our discipleship is bearing much fruit. Bringing glory to the Father through our fruitfulness. But that will only happen as we are abiding and staying connected to the life-giving vine. So how do you do that? How do you do John 15? You want to be a fruitful disciple, right? How do you do it? This passage tells us it's a daily dependence on Christ and all that he accomplished for you on the cross and in the resurrection. The call of this passage is not to exercise a one-time faith in Christ and what he accomplished, but a persevering dependency on his sacrificial death for you. doesn't mean we get saved more than once. It means that true faith perseveres in him all our days. Seek communion with God by faith in Christ. Seek cleansing from sin daily, By swimming in His blood, what He accomplished for you. Seek empowerment of the Spirit, because He earned the Spirit for you because of His sacrificial death. That's what it means to abide in the Son. Fill your life with the gospel. Fill your life with the cross. That's not all that's involved in this relationship. There's also the action of Christ. A perpetual giving of Christ's life to the believer. Jesus says, you feed on my flesh, drink my blood. I am, you abide in me and I in him. The branch not only remains in the vine, but the juices and the nourishment of the vine now fill the branches. His life now becomes our life to fill and transform us as believers. This is nothing other than the eternal life of the Son taking up residence in our life. It's amazing if you think about it. We're brought into a relationship of mutual dependency and giving to Christ. We depend on him and he fills us. Well, look now at verse 57. If that wasn't incredible enough, we we'll get one more description. The believer's posture of dependency on Christ as mediator of the life of God. So verse 54 described the result of eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood as eternal life. In verse 55 to 56, the result is this relationship of mutual abiding. And now verse 57, the result is experiencing the very life of the triune God. Look at verse 57. Jesus says, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So first, Jesus says, just as the living Father sent me, This is the eternal life of the Father, eternally given to the Son. He is the living Father. That is, he's self-existent. He has life in himself. He is the fountain of life. And the Son also is self-existent. I live, the Son says. He has life in himself. But look what he says, because of or on account of the Father. The Son lives eternally because of the Father. Remember back in five, chapter 5, verse 26? That's what it says here. Chapter 5, 26, Jesus says, As the Father has life in himself, self-existing life, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. That is, the Son is eternally the source of life. He's eternally having life in himself, just as the Father, but from eternity, from eternity it is as he depends on the Father. For this life in himself. The Son is no less God, no less eternal, no less self-existing than the Father, and yet in some sense he depends on the Father for this very life from eternity. And so that brings us to this next line. Jesus says, so also the one who feeds on me, that one will live on account of me. The Son has a dependency on the Father from eternity, and now Jesus says that This becomes the model for believers. We depend on the Son in the same way for life. But there's more. The living Father is inaccessible. How do you get the Father's life? You can't see God. You can't touch God. You can't communicate with God. He is inaccessible to you. If true life is knowing the eternal God, then how can that become ours? This passage says that it's through the Son who possesses the very same life as the Father. The Son, in other words, becomes the link, the mediator between God the Father and dead humanity. And the way we experience this is by a persevering dependency on Christ to be this. Just as the Father has life in himself, has given it to his Son, so the Son becomes a believer's life. In other words, we join in the very life of the triune God. We are never made into God. We are never made to have self-existing life, but our life is forever in the Son. Spiritually alive, brought into fellowship with this triune God. Flip over to chapter 17 really quick. Let me just give you a glimpse of this. We will obviously be unpacking this um, in the weeks ahead. Chapter 17, look at verse 20. If you're a believer, the life you have is not something... Some object the Son has given to you, it is his very life in you. It is the very life of the triune God in you. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, unified, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. If you have received Christ by faith and his sacrifice, you brought into fellowship with the eternal triune God. The very life of the Godhead has filled your hearts and has brought you to life. It is amazing. Well... That brings us to our final two points, verse 58 and 59. Let me read it really quickly. First, we get this pointed summary statement, verse 58. He wraps up everything he's been saying. This is the bread that has come down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Forever bread Christ has come to give is not something other than himself. It is himself. And those who eat it by a dependent gaze on his sacrifice will live literally unto the ages. You'll live forever. Have eternal life now means what? Life with God, forgiveness of sins, transformation of the heart. And then that will continue for the ages. And then verse 59, we get this provocative setting in synagogue. Look at verse 59. Jesus said all these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This teaching Jesus has done about himself and the inseparability of himself and his work for eternal life has taken place in the synagogue. There's evidence that synagogues sometimes would have this kind of discussion, back and forth, debate, uh, between a teacher and the and the people. But what is really provocative is that Jesus, at the time where Torah is read and explained, is preaching about himself. Can you imagine Pastor Pharaoh getting up Sunday morning and saying, I am God's gift to the world? Um, so Jesus is doing, I am the fulfillment of Passover. What we are reading. It's very possible that they were reading the passages. Um, uh, synagogues would have yearly readings, scheduled readings probably read Exodus 16 and Isaiah 54, that very Sabbath, and Jesus is saying, they apply to me. They're pointing to me. I am the one for whom it all points and prepares the true bread, the true Moses, the true manna, and the true Passover for the life of the world, that you would be reconciled to your creator, have true life, and knowing him for eternity. Next week, the crowd will respond And you're going to see most of them turn away, but it's a very important passage, and it's meant to give you confidence and boldness in the face of mass rejection, knowing his plan never fails, and also what your response as a true disciple ought to look like. So I have a couple of implications just sketched down here. Any questions, comments before we wrap up? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I just so we're just regarding the Trinity, just um, how Jesus is dependent on the Father, and yet He's also God, yeah. fully God. At the same time, could you explain that one more time again? Yeah. Um, it's what theologians would call the eternal generation of the Son. There was never a time in which the Son did not exist fully God, very God, a very God, just as much as the Father. He possesses self-existing life in himself, just as the Father. And yet these two passages, this one here back in chapter five said in some way Christ is dependent on that life uh, from his Father, from eternity, um, dependent on his Father. Um, okay. It's profound, it's deep, I don't sure. know if I could um, go beyond that. Okay. He is very God, a very God, just as much as the Father, and yet in some way he's dependent on his Father. Okay. Um, for everything that he is. He lives because of the Father. Father has given him to have life in himself. That's what chapter five verse twenty six says. It's a mystery. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Excellent question. Our thoughts? Yeah. Uh, when you had mentioned uh, one of the spiritual needs is, or one of our spiritual needs is separation from God. Mm-hmm. And then Mind went back to Genesis, where I think it was, where after Cain after Cain murdered Abel and his blood cried out, uh, the scripture says people began to fall on the name of the Lord. And uh, I've read John six a lot, and just thinking throughout scripture, the idea of atonement and blood sacrifice sort of and appeasing God because of the wrath. Mm-hmm. I mean, Israelites couldn't approach the manifest presence of God without fire coming out and consuming them because of. That Christ is restoring that, thinking all through Scripture that here it comes in as Christ. That it's, it's yeah, as anticipated, right from day one, he's, he's the one that's going to do it. Well, let me give you a couple implications to go. We way over time. Number one, note the exclusivity of this passage. The only way you have life is in the Son. That's so contrary to our pluralistic world that we live in. Um, They're fine you believe in Jesus, but not saying the only way to have life in yourselves is through Christ's faith in his sacrifice. It's very exclusive. Number two, there's the call to daily feed on Christ. Fill your life with the gospel. Approach God in communion constantly, but through faith in Christ. Swim in his blood daily. Number three, know the eternal life which is yours now. It involves the removal of judgment, it involves a new heart, new desires to obey God, and it involves an intimate relationship with God. Devote your life to bearing fruit. Devote your life to knowing Him and enjoying Him, and all for His glory. Know it's yours. The very life of God is in your soul, brothers and sisters. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, its clarity, its power. Thank you for your son and his sacrifice. Keep us persevering in our dependency on him, abiding in him, knowing his promise that he will abide in us, fill us with all of his life and spirit and cleansing and access to the Father. We love you. So you would bless us for the rest of the day. In Jesus' name, amen.